Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. We look at the stock market and the things that make it go up and down. We look at financial legislation that can impact your bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we take a deeper dive into a financial planning topic so we can look at the details. And finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question. So if you'd like to submit a question to the show, go to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com. And at the bottom of the homepage, you'll find a link where you can submit your question. Then I'll probably be in contact with you to get some more details, and then we'll air the question on the show so that people can get the educational information from it. So let's get started today with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update. And this is for the week ending July 24th, 2020. And we're looking at the weekly data this week, mainly because the weekly data is very flat. The market has not been going up like gangbusters like it was, but it also hasn't been going down. It looks like it might be consolidating around this level, and it's been doing that for a few weeks now. So over the last five days, the Dow Jones Industrial Average went down about three quarters of a percent. The S&P 500 went down a little more than a quarter of a percent. The NASDAQ went down 1.3%. Gold had a little bit of a rally, up 4.87%, likely due to the concern in the increasing cases in the COVID virus. West Texas Intermediate Crude is up 1.9%. The 10-year Treasury yield continues to fall. It's down another 5% this week. And if you own an aggregate bond fund, you probably saw it increase about a third of a percent. We're going to save the last measurement, the dollar, until after I talk about this next piece, and then we'll come back and look at the dollar, and I'll add that to our analysis going forward. So what I wanted to talk about today is based on a question I had last week, and it's kind of a complicated question, so I really didn't want to address it in the Ask Peggy segment, and it's very much about the stock market. And that question was, someone had heard that perhaps the U.S. dollar was about to crash, and that was going to lead to a massive economic slowdown, and everything was going to be awful, and did I think they should panic? And I will say that sometimes awful things happen, but generally, I'm a big fan of not panicking, regardless of what's going on. And has there been a big crash in the dollar? Well, in the short term, the dollar has gone down a little bit, but that was after it went up noticeably until the period where the stock market bottomed. So, 
I'm almost afraid to try to talk about this on the radio because it gets super complicated. But I want to talk a little bit about the dollar movement up and down and what it means. And I want to start out by saying that there are analysts who like a strong dollar and there's analysts who like a weak dollar. You'll find overall that most people who are looking at the stock market prefer a weaker dollar. Now, why is that? It's very important that you know that when you are purchasing goods or materials or products from a country, you're purchasing it in their currency. So if you're trying to do business overseas, you want things to sell. So if someone from Japan is looking to make a purchase or from China to purchase an American product, then they're purchasing it in dollars. And when the dollar is lower, they're more inclined to make the purchase because it's slightly cheaper compared to their currency. So a slightly weaker dollar tends to cause products to cost less for people to purchase. Now, if American products go to a foreign country and they're sold in that foreign country, they're sold in that currency. So if in fact the yuan, the Chinese currency is a little stronger and the dollar is a little weaker, then anything that the Chinese buy in the United States is going to be a little bit cheaper. But anything they buy in China is going to be a little bit more expensive. This is good for the American businessman who is producing the product here and selling it overseas where the currency is slightly higher. So... <laughs> If you're a little lost, many people are. What I want your takeaway from this to be is that a weaker dollar is not necessarily the sign of an upcoming stock market crash. In fact, global companies tend to prefer a weaker dollar if they're producing here, but then taking it to an overseas country where it's being sold because they buy the goods and materials here and they pay less. They move it to the other country where it costs more, so they make more. Conversely, foreign countries sometimes like to get a deal. So if they're buying it from us, they have a tendency to buy more. Now, the flip side is when the currency is weaker, sometimes that's a function of people being concerned about the overall economic health of the United States. However, remember what I just said, as our stock market was crashing, our dollar was going up. Once the stock market quit crashing and started going up, the dollar started going down. Now, <laughs> this leads to the other thing that can happen with a currency. And even though we were having huge economic issues in February and March, we were not as screwed up as the rest of the, of the world. 
So the United States dollar was stronger because it was seen as a safe harbor. Anytime something is seen as safe, people buy it. And they were buying it not so much because the United States was doing great, but because everybody else was doing worse. So the takeaway from this is dollar movements are complicated because I know that there are some internet stories out there about the upcoming demise of the American dollar, I'm going to start following it on the show a little bit more. Now, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't swear that everything is fine with the dollar, but I will say that I think everything is fine, especially when you compare it to other potential competing currencies. So the United States may have issues right now, but overall, it still is a very stable, solid place. And as long as that is the truth, our currency will continue to be fine. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And I will admit that I'm taping this show a little early this week. It's actually Sunday afternoon. It's July 26th, and I got my script ready for the show, and between the time that I finished the script and I sat down to tape, there's been legislative news, which is that the Senate has now made a CARES Act proposal for benefits that it wants to add to the stimulus that's already been issued. The only thing I've heard about this, and this news is literally less than an hour old, is to get around the issue of the $600 in unemployment benefits that was such a sticking point, they've put a cap on the unemployment extension of benefits so that the maximum benefit that someone can receive is 70% of what they were earning in salary. So it's no longer $600 added to their check. Instead, it is a benefit that is equal to no more than 70% of what they were earning before. Now, I wouldn't worry a lot about whether you like this change or not, because it hasn't gone back to the House. It hasn't been signed by the White House. And I have a feeling that the final CARES package is going to look considerably different than it does right now. So it's important to know that things are back and talking again. It sort of stalled out the end of last week, specifically around these unemployment benefits on some Senate Republicans wanting to continue with the additional $600, some Senate Republicans wanting nothing at all. So it looks like the 70% of the benefit is the compromise. It's interesting because this compromise is quite similar to what happens if you go on disability. Now, disability is often not quite 70% of your salary. Sometimes it's much closer to 60%. But the idea that a stopgap benefit package would not be 100% or over 100% of a salary is not terribly surprising. 
I understand the thought that it's important to make people okay and that people have enough stress, but the 70% of the benefit package is probably a compromise that will last. So more on this next week. I suspect there'll be all kinds of wranglings during the upcoming week, and I'll fill you in on it next week in the show. The other interesting thing that happened this week from a legislative perspective that also probably means absolutely nothing is that Joe Biden offered a prospective tax plan and listed out some of the changes that he would make to the tax code. And I'm not going to bore you with a lot of this. I am going to say that there is potentially an increase in taxation for people that earn over $400,000. For some reason, and, and I haven't really studied this plan enough to know why $400,000, but $400,000 seems to be his mental threshold, that if you earn more than that, it's much more important that you pay additional taxes rather than if you earn less than that. So it will increase Social Security tax on people earning more than 400000 It would raise nominal brackets. It would limit itemized deductions. Um, so there's also some business tax changes where it would get rid of the qualified business income deduction. It would also potentially raise um, income tax brackets on businesses. On the benefits side, it would be an $8,000 tax credit for childcare expenses. It would adjust the taxes to define contribution plans. And I should have read more details on this, and I didn't. Again, I'm trying to just point you in some directions, as well as then providing additional tax credits for purchasing health insurance on the Affordable Care Act exchange. Remember that um, candidate Biden's idea is to fix the Affordable Care Act, not throw it out and start over with something else. So how much do these changes matter? Really, they don't. And that's because first, he would have to win the election. Second, there would probably need to be a democratically um, controlled House as well as a Senate. And then even then, there would have to be buy-in to all of this. So I think it's interesting to look and see where things are going. I probably have a bit of a middle-class bias and am not as concerned about what happens to the taxes of people who make more than $400,000 a year. And I suspect there will be a lot of people, but when you hear stories about raising taxes, it's always important to dig a couple levels deeper and see what those tax changes will do to impact you. Then you absolutely vote your interest. If there's negative things here and you believe that this is a terrible idea, you need to know that. If you discover it doesn't impact you as much as you thought, you also need to know that. And that's true on both candidates. Okay, I really think it's important that we not listen to ads and just believe them. I don't think we should listen to pundits and their talking points. I like to go in and dig into the details and find out what people mean when they make really broad statements. 
I would recommend that you follow that guideline too because we are today 100 days exactly from the election. And as you know, in the fall, we're entering the silly season when it comes to political advertisements. And it's really important that you know what's going on and then you need to vote the way that makes the most sense for you. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I wanted to share a blog that I wrote last week. If you're interested in reading the blog, you can go to askpeggy.com and click on the tab that says blog and you'll see all of my blogs there. But sometimes, especially in the recent weeks, the show has gotten really heavy. And there's nothing I love more than a good metaphor. And this summer, my husband and I have grown a vegetable garden like we do every year. But this year, and I'm not sure why, maybe it's because I'm taking a more active role in it, the vegetables are going crazy. They're just doing so very well. And I wanted to take some time and talk to you about how creating an investment portfolio is a lot like planting a vegetable garden. And if you want to see a picture of my tomatoes, you can go to askpeggy.com and I'm holding one of the first tomatoes that I got off of the plants. And so it, it's really kind of fun and, and would give you an opportunity to learn a little bit more about me. If we're going to look at the vegetable garden like an investment portfolio, the first thing you have to do is diversify. You never know what is going to grow well in any given year when you put the garden in. Rarely do I have a year where everything does great. This year, my tomatoes are fabulous, my peppers are fabulous, but I live in Oklahoma and it's very hard to kill hot peppers. My yellow squash is far better than average, and I tried to plant an herb garden. I thought it would be nice to have some fresh herbs. I'm cooking more this summer like everyone else is, and I thought it'd be really great to go to my garden and harvest some herbs. Well, nothing at all sprouted. I bought seeds, I put them in the ground, and nothing, crickets. So there are no fresh herbs this summer. The same thing can happen with your investment portfolio. The reason you don't buy one thing and go all in is you're never completely sure what's going to happen next. One of the reasons I went into this profession was due to what happened to my mother during the dot-com bubble and subsequent crash. She retired and gave her investment portfolio to a stockbroker in March of 2000, and she told him that she wanted to make some money. So he put her all in high-tech. He put her in high-tech single stocks, and then he bought a high-tech fund to get some diversification going. That is all the man bought her. So when the dot-com bubble burst, oh, about three months after he put the investments in there, she got wiped out. 
In fact, she lost between 40 and 50% of her investment in companies that went away. You know, the, the market rule is, oh, you haven't lost money until you sell. Well, if you're invested in individual companies and they go bankrupt, they don't come back. But that was before I knew anything about investing. She didn't know anything investing. And she really suffered a terrible blow. My aunt, on the other hand, worked with a different broker in the same firm who diversified her. So she had a little technology, but she had lots of bonds because she was retired. And she had U.S. large cap and she had some international. And even though she got hurt in the market downturn, she didn't suffer nearly the catastrophe that my mother did because she was diversified. Now, the diversification can become even more granular than the major categories that we think of. So this year, I'm growing jalapeno peppers, and I'm growing serrano peppers. And even though I thought for a while, I couldn't believe it, that my jalapenos were not going to pull it off, they've come through, they're doing great. But having the diversification even within the category of pepper, give me a better chance of something doing well. So when you're invested in stocks, maybe you want large cap and small cap. You can get more specific by looking at international and breaking it between emerging and developed markets. And you can even go down a more granular level than that and stay in funds by looking at individual sectors. So in the same way that mom got creamed because she was only in technology, that's a sector. So as utilities and consumer discretionary and healthcare. So you can go into the stock side and do a lot of diversification. You can actually diversify a lot on the bond side as well. And one of the things I hope you learn is more about the bond side of your portfolio. It tends to be the part that nobody talks about because, you know, the stocks are the glamorous side and the bonds are what you earn for some ballast. But really, there's so much on the bond side that you need to understand. You can own government bonds or corporate bonds. Within corporate bonds, you can buy investment-grade corporates or higher-yielding corporates. Remember, in bonds, the more yields you make, the more risk you're taking. So your government bond would, from a standard deviation perspective, be safer, and then you'd have your investment-grade corporates, and then you'd have your high yields. That's assuming that the bond market is functioning like it's usually supposed to. You can also have international bonds, and they can be developed in emerging markets as well. You can go with short-term, you can go with long-term. So it's possible to diversify on your bond side just like you can on your stock side. And there's a lot of economic and interest rate considerations you'd want to look at as you tried to make those choices. So diversification is key. Next, once you plant a seed, don't dig it up the next day to see how it's doing. 
I know when you buy something, when you buy a fund, when you buy a stock, you want to see how it's performing. And I've never been that person who said, don't look at things, okay? I think it's really important to open the envelope from your statement, even if it isn't doing very well. You need to know what you own. But I see people who are day trading or they're really, really nervous and so they're just following investments with every single tick. When you do that, you have a tendency to overreact. So it's really important to make a lot of good, hard thinking with your financial planner as you're putting together your portfolio and then give it some time. You don't want to sell something the day after you bought it unless it's truly an extraordinary circumstance. So don't dig up your seeds and don't throw away your investments too quickly. Of course, you want your portfolio garden to grow. We all do. And so we, we hope that we make money in, in growth. But remember, it's also very important to control the variables you can. So don't just put money into the market once. Maybe put a little bit in every month. And then you can dollar cost average into your investments. And you're more likely to get an average price. And it's important that you fund your portfolio because for most of us who earn less than $400,000, if you go back to the last segment, the way we survive retirement is we put money into the market. We put money in our 401ks. We put money in our IRAs. We pay for our kids' college by putting money into a 529 or a Coverdell or a TOD or some other kind of account. So, it's very important that you know how much money you need to contribute to your retirement plan so you can retire when you want to do it. You want to watch out for insects and pests and things that can destroy your garden. I've always tended to think that my mother's stockbroker was a pretty good pest, although I will say he certainly set my life off in a new and hopefully good direction. But you need to know the person that you're working with is acting as your fiduciary, that they are truly putting you first with the legal, with the legal trappings that go with the fiduciary duty. You want to know how much your funds cost. You don't want to lose a lot of money in fund fees because that's money that you're not making unless the return is so great that it makes sense to do it. So really be careful with who you choose to work with and be careful with what you own that you know its risks, its rewards, and its costs. Then finally, you need to have a realistic expectation of how big everything is going to get. It wouldn't be fair for me to expect my tomatoes to get to the size of a watermelon. You also have to have a realistic expectation of how much things will grow. So you need to do some research and find out what normal rates of return are. That's what you will earn and they will be risk adjusted. So if you own bonds and stocks, that will give you a different return than all stocks. So this summer is nothing like I expected it to be, but my garden has been a joy. If you'll take some time and understand your investments, 
your investment garden will also give you great returns. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment. And today I have time for a quick question, which is Peggy, I've just started working with a financial planner. What sort of documents should you expect them to be asking me for? And this can really confuse clients, especially if you've only worked with a broker, because a financial planner is probably going to want to see cash flow documents, tax returns, investment accounts, maybe details about your retirement plan, summaries of your insurance policies, summaries of your estate documents, and possibly additional things. Because remember that financial planning tries to be comprehensive. It at least tries to look at your financial life in a way that it doesn't forget an important component. The best way for the planner not to miss something is to ask for you to provide it. That way they don't have to guess about the details. It works best. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money. <laughs>